Hello, what's the crack? Welcome to World and Union, the Boss Daddy Rugby Podcast. Mars Bros and here. I'm delighted to be joined by PJ Brown. PJ, how's the form? I am good, Mars. Thank you very much. We've got a brilliant show lined up today. We're going to talk about both Pro 14 semi-finals in a couple of minutes. We'll hear from the post-match press conference from Johan van Graan, uh, Leo Cullen and Peter Mahoney. And we're also going to chat to Jamie Hagen, who's down playing with Bézier in the Pro D2 in France. Obviously played for Connacht and Leinster before then. We might start chronologically, I suppose, uh, PJ, and talk about Ulster. Uh, I don't know, but I, I find it really hard to analyse a game when a team put 50 points put in them. And in, I suppose it was kind of a bad stopgap to end their season and also to bid farewell to Roy Best and Darren Cave. Mm-hmm. But like it shouldn't define their season. This kind of was a free shot initially anyway. In some ways, yeah, but it was such a comprehensive... They, they got hockeyed. Yeah. Absolutely destroyed. They never looked like from... Like they conceded a try within, what, 130 seconds? They never looked like winning that game. There was one point, it was, I think they had, they kicked at a corner, they were 14-0 down, they lost the line out, and you're like, that's it, this is over. And I, there are positives about the season, definitely. I mean, from where they've come from last year, where they were nearly didn't qualify for Europe, they were a total basket case, to get into a semi-final this year, it's good. But there was no effort, like, it, it was... There would be no shame in losing to this Glasgow side, who are a really good team if you were in some way competitive. But they weren't in any way competitive at all. They, they've shipped 80 points to this Glasgow team in the last, what, two months. Yeah, for, for me, like looking at it from, a, I suppose, like trying to look at it objectively, you know, well, the way I kind of would analyse that game and also Ulster season is, you know, you think about Dan McFarlane arriving like a week before the season actually starts because of everything that went on in Scotland. Um, the kind of the amount of, departures they had at the end of last season when you really think about it like players like Rodney Ayew and Chris Henry who were kind of like in their own way regulars and they had to kind of rebuild there and you've got like really really positives in people like Eric O'Sullivan and how well he he has he has done and then kind of the signings that they've hinted at for the summer like I think Jack McGrath could be a really shrewd signing you saw the damage that Martin Moore's absence had on their scrum at the the weekend there I think this game was a frame of reference you know this like it's in the same way the Munster game was actually it showed them their their own level they've definitely improved from last year their season has been a success it can be deemed a success but they're not anyway close to that kind of top you know six to four teams in in Europe they had their peak for the season was one massive performance against Leinster in the quarterfinal they couldn't afford to lose the Connets after what Connets did to them last October in a home quarterfinal in the Pro 14 afterwards. But after that, then I think they were spent. I think that was pretty obvious at the weekend. So, I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be too damning about them based off that one performance. I still think there's been a lot of positives and the overall direction is, is pretty promising. This is Roy Best last ever game I know, for yeah. yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I can't believe that did, did you say you say like they were wrecked, they were tired, they did nothing left? But I can't believe they had nothing left to give for Rory Best in his final ever game. You, you could see how much it meant to him afterwards. He yeah, was, he was distraught. He yeah. was absolutely like I said, absolutely distraught. I, I just find it hard to believe that they they had nothing to give for him there because they were never in that game at all. Even like it was right at the end when they scored a couple of tries and they put a little bit of like bit of makeup on this that they were like they were asking oh do we have time for to take the kickoff you're like where was that urgency earlier in the game well i mean like we didn't see that at all yeah i mean yeah and even really simple stuff like their defensive alignment was terrible at times the ali price try was such a classic example of that um i thought they're like really really simple stuff like you know 
their defense all season I think Jared Payne has done a really really good job there but they can see the seven tries and they seem to you know be waiting for like shooting up quickly and then stopping and waiting to see what happened and it gave Glasgow too much space a team with as good an attacking arsenal as they have it just it kind of doesn't really make sense um so yeah like the performance itself I just find it hard to analyze you know when you're that comprehensively hammered and I don't think that is you know as badly as their it wasn't in any way reflective of their season it just shows with their level is that I suppose like on the theme of positives right the if there was one main takeaway from this game I think it's the impact Marty Moore has had since he arrived like they're bar, after the Connacht game I think they're own they were over 95% winning their own feed in scrums and he comes out and they kind of fall to pieces um, they parachuted in a guy like Eric O'Sullivan from who was playing AIL rugby last year it's like worth remembering he obviously came off injured against Glasgow as well again it just goes to show that you know that like that next level depth, depth isn't there a guy like Jack McGraw will definitely give them that to, but if you're looking at like if we were to talk about signings of the season for this for this year maybe we will actually like the Matt yeah. Moore is probably the, the number one example I think yeah, he definitely is. I think we were talking a few weeks ago in this podcast about how Marty Moore could be a, a good uh, backup to Tyg Furlong yeah, uh, yeah. W- with Ireland because he does similar things. He has really good hands. And yeah, he, he's definitely been... It, it, it's a, for, for these like for like lads who go, go to Ulster, it's a big decision. And I think Marty, Marty Moore came there... A little, uh, not the direct route, a little bit circuitous in comparison to who I think is another great signing for him this year, Jordy Murphy, who has done really well. That, that was a massive decision for him going up there. And I think it has worked out for him. Absolutely, he, yeah. He's, 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 I think he's definitely in with a shout of, the, of making the Ireland squad for the World Cup because of how he has played this season. Yeah, I actually, I Jordan Murphy didn't even register me for a second there, but of course, I mean, really, really dynamic has been a massive presence. Goes to show the kind of the value which we'll talk about later of having a traditional open side. Um, a guy like Will Allison before he got injured, I think definitely was 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 that as well. Then that's like there, you know. I always talk about this, you know, when you make a sign in, especially kind of the likes of Ulster or um, Connacht, you know, even Munster actually, I think they need to look at this as well. You know, you need to re. Burst, you're, you've got a tier below your international quality standard players. Like you've got these elite level players, but then you know during Six Nations or a World Cup in September or international duty in November, those players leave, and suddenly what what's next? Like the fact that Martin Moore wasn't involved with Ireland was a major plus for them during the Six Nations. I I think mm. the fact that Jordy Murphy was around in November, I think really helped and kind of shows that value. You also talk about a guy like like Billy Burns, for example. Like I, you know he's a Pro 14 standard out half and that's kind of what they needed that's when they lost international players it might have been a big step down and that these kind of you know second bracket players that that's what they need to bolster I think that was so obvious you know once Martimore was injured and Eric Sullivan again going back to those two the, the gap down was, was pretty apparent you mentioned Billy Barnes there who did not didn't didn't have a good game at no. the weekend um, I, I think someone like an signing who did go on there next season Bill Johnson he's going to be yeah, looking be at really that excited game. about that yeah. yeah he's going to be looking at that thing I could be starting here. There's no reason why you might why you wouldn't be starting, given how Billy Barnes playing. Billy Barnes will not be going to the World Cup. If you I look, mean, like, we 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 talk. I mean, like I don't know if anyone really thought that, but he like he was out in there as maybe like a fourth choice, yeah, kind of maybe. Yeah. But now he's like on the back of that performance. No, so yeah, Bill Johnson. I would think he's thinking I made the right decision here. I could be starting next year. And if, if if you look like in an overall context, let's say if you take Connacht for example, um, like I'm signings for the season. I think just 
a player who had a really good impact when he arrived and again like gave that kind of added percentage but obviously he was going to be missing needed game time Stephen Fitzgerald I thought Stephen Fitzgerald has done really really well since he arrived anytime he played I know it was only a loan deal but it kind of showed the value of maybe a move like that that guy wasn't even getting a look in at Munster came down and has performed really well anytime he was asked of it right up until I think the quarterfinal might not necessarily have gone his way but up until then I thought he was really strong It's great to see like lads who are other preferences not getting game time going somewhere else and all of a sudden they go back to wherever they did their, their original club that now all of a sudden they're not better standing like yeah yeah and like another signing for Connacht this year I think been really good Colby Fienga yeah definitely I mean, yeah, he's, yeah. he's been like a, he's been like I think 17 starts from this year he's like a really experienced player I, really, I think uh, Andy Friend was talking about how excited he was to, when he like he decided, kind of uh, agreed to join Connacht that that Feinga was already on the way, uh, already on the way there. I mean, Feinga is like what he he said he was one of these lads who he he's not a wallaby, but like he's like one of those ones he should have been a wallaby. Yeah, at some yeah. stage, like yeah. So I, I mean, like, that's kind of in the same way as Martin Moore. That's the kind of guy that you want to like has a massive impact, not only in terms of his own individual impact, but in, like all of a sudden, Munster, uh, sorry, Connacht system expands as well. Like he's a guy who really really suits that in the same vein as somebody like Butler suits that as well. Um, comes in kind of adds that bit of like dynamism that that Connacht kind of needed to kick on that next level um, there's probably no real lengths for example Joe Tamani is the signing they had but I don't think that's worked out no. both form and injuries um, it's been a pretty poor year um, if you look at Munster I think the two obvious ones are Joey Carberry and Ty Byrne um, despite kind of you know Joey Carberry has been injured recently and Ty Byrne had a pretty bad dip in form kind of over the last maybe three weeks uh, both of them as a, as a season and going back to the Ulster idea as a whole season that they've been really really promising yeah I think we, we haven't really see, we saw flashes early on of what Joey Carberry can do earlier on the season we probably haven't seen it when it's really mattered he was injured during that uh, the Champions Cup quarterfinal uh, on, on like uh, at the weekend and sorry on Saturday he probably didn't really get a chance to, to, to do a whole lot and make an impact on the game his kicking has been amazing this year actually one thing in terms of accuracy yeah. in terms of accuracy yeah like from from, uh, from penalties what I mean is that that has been incredible like really good this year it's like an area of his game where he has definitely stepped it up uh, that's good to see yeah I like the fact as well like Carberry's a funny one you know there's a like I love the fact to see a player who made that move down and you know people are worried oh it's going to dilute the provinces and all of a sudden you've got you know Munster taking Leinster players or Ulster it's vice versa as well and I like the fact that he's really bought in and talked about like there's nowhere else he'd be rather playing rugby. That's the line he said in the build up to this game. And, and backed that up by signing a new contract. Three year deal. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even when I was in at the RDS obviously on Saturday and even when he was coming off, um, like he was kind of smiling, there was fans chanting at him three more years, like Leinster fans kind of jeering him as, as he came off and he was like a kind of wry smile on his face. But the fact that that kind of rivalry is still there books that trend of kind of, we might talk about that game now actually because as I mentioned, I you know I was in at it. Um, Munster were just a level below. I thought this. That's what the second half was really apparent. The one thing you know, like whatever about kind of you know, like Munster would match anybody in terms of physicality. They've got a really strong set piece, but um, you know, there's something more intrinsic than that. Like regardless of kind of personnel, I think that they need to kind of expand to. And it was really obvious in the second half when you see you know for Sean Cronin's try. It's Keen Healy playing like a centre, like really smart line, soft hands out wide to Furlongs. Same thing again. Setting away great front row union try exactly. there, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of minutes later, that was that section through that dummy off his left, went straight through the gap. Off that phase, Luke McGregor caught in a ruck, and Tyke Furlong stood in as a scrum half, just seamlessly played the ball out wide again. They crashed down that line. Like, this is all 
that's all skill based stuff that's stuff that Stuart Lancaster places a huge amount of value in and I think you know when you think about one of the most damning stats of that game is CJ Sander 16 carries for 14 yards like the it's you know running against a brick wall over and over again without any kind of creativity or risk really yeah that that's kind of becomes like so damning they were the, like I said the effort most definitely was there it's just like there was no there was no there's no innovation whatsoever and I think if we were sitting here not knowing the changes were being made to the the backroom team this year especially yeah. in attack we'd be calling for it we'd be saying to change something has to happen here something like something this there needs to be something different done next season because you're go- going nowhere at the moment and it's, it's such a big big moment for Munster this year like during this summer when seeing who they bring in to, as this attack coach with Van Gran because Stephen Larkham being named that mentioned Rob Howley I mean like I don't I, I don't know I mean like they're good names I, I don't know. Are, are they the are they the men to take Munster to the next level? We can we can hear actually. We might hear from Yomar Grand. This is him speaking in his press conference after the game, and here's him talking about where he thought the game was kind of won and lost. Discipline. I thought they started off in the uh, first two minutes with a penalty. We went straight back to three all. Thought we played some very good track in the first half. They got that penalty on the stroke of half time to give them a three point lead, and straight off the half time we conceded that yellow card and. On the 10th minute of the yellow card, they scored the try, <coughs> fell behind 19, 19 points to 9, and then I think penalty count was something like 13 6. Can't concede 13 penalties in an away semi final. The message is uh, we'll come back stronger next year. Firstly, review this game in the coming week. Uh, the effort and attitude I can't fault. Uh, they gave it all out there. Uh, unfortunately, we got beaten by a better team on the day, and like I said, uh, we did some really good things. But um, you can't give them 13 times that they go to a lineup from a penalty and, and put you under pressure, and then you've got to defend in your own half against a quality team like Leinster. Like, I, I mean, I was obviously over in Coventry as well after the Saracens game. I thought Van Grant at that stage looked a bit shocked after that game. This time I spoke, thought he spoke really well. Like, that analysis is pretty spot on. As a base level, you know, he talked about, you know, effort and endeavour. And most obviously have that, and that is going to always get them to a certain level. But beyond that, there's a kind of a multitude of things they need to get right if they want to kick on beyond that level their discipline that's the second time that that's happened you know, think about the penalties they give away against Saracens and how clinical Farrell was again 13 penalties at the weekend he referenced it there the damage that did we'll hear from Peter Matty in a second who also elaborates on that um, in terms of improving next year like that's one thing that you always need to prove but as you mentioned there there's more to it than that you know that you need to what we're just talking about here like you need to expand your game you need to try and take more risk there's you know just a classic example there was a I was sitting so I was sitting down the front row actually for this game I wasn't up in the press box just because of space and all this kind of stuff but while I was down there I could see um, there was a moment in the first half where Ringrose got a ball out wide and they had a 3v2 on the outside and 3v2 you know as a kid if you're coaching a versus a 3v2 it's kind of hands hands get it fixed to two men get the third man out wide but that's not necessarily the same when you get to this level of rugby because with drift defences and everything a 3v2 isn't as clinical in certain circumstances and this was one of those circumstances I just thought it was really interesting to see how they managed to still work a gap which was Ringers receiving the ball and getting Larmore to run a hard line inside and passing out the back instead so you're like it's just like a really small kind of nuanced change within that that was called on the spot that allowed them to kind of work the overlap anyway and like just a slight level above maybe your standard what would happen in that kind of circumstances I think that's where like Munster needs to get to like try and 
you know build off one two three phases trying to make, be- make better decisions it's going back to Donovan O'Callaghan we spoke about this on the podcast after the Treviso game Donovan O'Callaghan said you know players need to take responsibility for this try and elaborate on your own game like, try and be a bit more creative don't just rely on the same old structures or look to coaches to try and improve it the one of the, one of the phrases that was kept kept using over the weekend was that Munster and well and Ulster neither of them fired a shot, which is and probably the most disappointing aspect of that is well they don't lack the ammunition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they definitely have the players, but I I don't think the onus should just be on the players to develop their own skills. Of course, it should like you know everyone should want to develop their their own skill set, but it, it shouldn't be solely upon them and. There are, there are, it's different circumstances with Ulster and with Munster because Ulster, there, there has been a change and improvement this season, it's clear. Whereas with Munster, it just seems to be stagnant yeah. at the moment. Uh, on that, right, Peter Mahoney, is, who we're just going to hear from now, um, this was one pissed off Peter Mahoney, I think it's fair to say. Hmm. Um, he's been in this situation a lot recently. I mean, obviously, they again, in North Sydney's final loss, same thing as last year. Uh, he spoke after the Saracens game as well. I think it's really, really clear how frustrating it is for players like him and Conor Murray and Keith Darrells and how much it means to them. Um, and I still think he actually spoke pretty well. I like I always I'm interested to hear what he says because there's always some sort of nugget that will give you some sort of insight into it. Um, the first question he was asked it was about the the bite in the rivalry and whether or not there was you know even referencing the December game and there was an incident off the ball between Byrne and Conor Murray kind of confronting each other and uh, he kind of I don't think he was necessarily that impressed with the question so this is how he responded to it Yeah what else would you expect from a, a derby you know what I mean there's, there's a lot at stake semi-final um, you know, I wouldn't expect anything less Yeah look similar to Johan um, you know you can't come to somewhere like Leinster and concede 13 penalties um, a lot of them in crucial moments as well, either kickable or I had them under pressure in their 22, um, and and you know a big release valve when we were playing some great rugby at times. So um, look, they certainly played very well as well. I'm not taking away from that. Uh, you know, their their ability to, to keep the ball going forward, uh, certainly for some of those penalties, you know you're you're under pressure, you know on your back foot, but some of them were silly as well. Um, so look. We don't have any arguments. Look, we've we've had a huge positives this year. We've we've taken big steps forward. Look, as as have other teams, obviously. Um, you know, be different animal than me sitting here. And, you know, we were out of Europe and group stages, and we uh, didn't progress in the, the latter stages. Of this, you know, we're, we're we're doing a lot of things right. We just got to figure out where we can get the, uh, the extra percent or two. And I think that's fair enough, really. Um, as a whole, I think he's, he's spot on. You know, Munsters have had a good season. This I think it's far from a crisis. You know, you're still top four team in Europe. You're still top four team in the Pro 14. Um, the, if it would be a very different story if you know they hadn't got out of the group as it happened in the last couple of years. But as you mentioned, there's a couple of different areas that they need an extra few percent, and it, that is, has to be relative improvement. Like you've got good players, but everybody else is improving at the same pace too. You need kind of a a bigger jump, and it's kind of hard to see where they're going to get that from. And it looks like they've hoped that maybe a new attacking coach might give that to them as well. You can see, I can understand why these lads are so frustrated. It's now going to be, it's going to be not at least nine years since the, the last one of trophy. If they were to win one next year, it would be nine years. It's quite a long time for a lot of lads who are coming towards the in, the latter parts of their careers, like Keith Earls and like Omani. And I would, they, 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 they needed to 
they needed to win something this year. Yeah. They, really, they definitely did. And it must be frustrating to see. We kind of knew that Saracens were going to be better than them. And they weren't weren't really competitive with them. I think it's probably even more of a shock for them to kind of realise how far they are off Leinster. Because Leinster did, Leinster, Leinster did well, yes. Especially defensively, Leinster played really well. But they didn't offer a whole lot in attack. They didn't have to play super well to beat Munster yesterday. We'll speak to one former Leinster man now in a couple of minutes. But just before we do, um, Leo Cullen's post-match press conference has caused a bit of controversy uh, especially online and I think it's worth kind of talking about that for a second um, so just to put this in context we're talking on Sunday evening there might be later clarification we don't know but we're actually, I'll actually play the full audio from what Leo Cullen said and we can discuss it after yeah they sure were yeah um, yeah we, we well we played Glasgow a hell of a lot last year not so much this year we lost them here a few weeks ago um, well coached team um, you know Dave Rennie was uh, someone I admired from, a, from afar uh, and when I was still playing I went over to the Chiefs um, to watch them train and go about their business so um, yeah he's an impressive coach Dave Rennie so um, it's going to be a tough challenge for our guys I thought they were very clinical last night um, in the game against Ulster uh, you know scored seven tries it's no mean feat um, against Ulster you've been going very well defensively so um, yeah it's going to be a tough challenge for our guys you know off to Celtic Park hopefully we have a, a good crowd of Leinster supporters over there um, Glasgow rugby players all support uh, Rangers I've been told so um, everybody in Glasgow should be supporting us the Celtic fans for sure um, so hopefully we'll have a good crowd over there I suppose Leo what do you expect from the atmosphere over there like it's, it's a place that has a lot of history for Irish football fans heading over to cheer on Celtic but as you mentioned we're face a team who, who are from that city and who could have lots of fans who would be there against us as well yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be unbelievable. So, um, you know, as you say, like there's thousands of Irish fans go over to to Glasgow to watch Celtic play uh, virtually every weekend. Um, you know, and hopefully we'll have a few of those fans next week um, because uh, Glasgow rugby is, as I said, is probably more Rangers supporters over there than Celtic ones. So the first question that he was actually asked there was just how impressed was he with Glasgow against Ulster that night, and he went off to answer how he did and the second question as you heard there um, I think it's important to leave that in because he did reference Irish fans travelling across so that's the context that Colin was speaking from um, now obviously this has been hasn't gone down too well with a lot of Glasgow fans um, I think like, without I'm calling anybody out certainly not in that person did he ever say Glasgow all sport Rangers as in the city like that that's not what he meant there he said Glasgow he actually said Glasgow rugby players so I, I've seen that quote in a couple of places but that's there was an, another briefing as well elsewhere from one of these. maybe he said it there but that's definitely there he he did try and make a bad joke that it was Glasgow rugby players from my own perspective I mean I thought it was I thought it was clumsy rather than malicious I, I don't think he meant to stoke anything up really I think he kind of was talking about it from an Irish perspective but I also can totally understand why Glasgow fans might have picked it up the wrong way because he just left it way too open to interpretation as he spoke that he kind of didn't like didn't even clarify what necessarily the point he's trying to make. So I can understand why like Glasgow fans would, would feel kind of aggrieved by that. But I don't think there was I think it was kind of a maybe a tongue in cheek, ill judged joke as opposed to, you know, something to try and soak anything up. You, well, it's pretty clear it was he was trying to be tongue in cheek. Yeah. You can see if you watch the video, there's there's a smile on his face. Yeah. As he, exactly. as, he, as, yeah. He, as he's saying this. But it was like this is a highly charged area. Uh, in the which he's kind of waiting here he didn't need to go into this jungle sure, like, yeah? sure. The, I mean like it was 
maybe maybe he had this joke in advance that he was trying, going to make this point, but I because he does go into that after he talks about he's asked that first question he does talk he, he doesn't really answer the question does he no that he's asked he starts talking about Glasgow the Glasgow players yeah, supporting yeah. Rangers yeah he, he he went into this area himself he didn't need to go in there it was just like it just seems ill-advised yeah exactly yeah and I like I think the like as as is often in these cases, I think it was important to leave in that second question because the overall like there's a context from him looking at it from an Irish perspective and knowing that there's Irish fans who go over there every single weekend to support Celtic anyway and kind of joking, oh well maybe they might come along and support us even though like, they're playing on the same day in the cup final, but like they're obviously not going to support Leicester. I mean th- that so it's kind of a misjudged in terms of that mm. area but then you can also understand it from a Glasgow perspective in terms of why they might feel aggrieved by that and you know like, the kind of what is kind of really divided their city and how the voice of that sort of language can be so I, I just think it was like it was probably wrongly worded but I don't necessarily think that we don't know now as we said they could well come out and clarify this later on or we don't know but at, as we talk now I just think that it was probably yeah probably misjudged yeah well I mean like when you see this written down you see the quotes written down it does seem yeah. far worse than when you are watching a video of it I mean like his his smile doesn't come across in in print and maybe, I mean, like, he's probably not thinking that way when he's, well, he's not thinking that way when he is making these statements. I mean, I, I can definitely, like you, I can understand why Glasgow fans are upset about this because they, they are comments which are, you are creating a division there. And yeah, that, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, in the next day or two, that there is some kind of clarification or apology made by Colin Leinster. Yeah, I, I, but just, fi- I do think, finally, that I don't think it was intentional. I think that was really obvious. That it, w- it was, both from his body language to smile, the way he said it, I think it was meant as a joke that it just it was bad, you know, um, it happens. Um, just before we move on, one thing that is really interesting, f- quickly, before we speak to Jamie, is in a World Cup context, right? Because... You think about how impressive Glasgow are. That's going to be the bulk of the Scotland team which opened the World Cup campaign against Ireland next September. You think about players. We thought Josh Van Floyd was out for the season and that might do like irreversible damage. We spoke, Me and you spoke about Scott Penny maybe mm. in the absence of Levy and Van Flair. He comes back in, has an absolute stormer. A player like Jack Conan also has a stormer. Suddenly their World Cup picture looks a lot more promising now. Yeah, definitely does. Uh, that was Josh Van Flair's first game since playing 80 minutes against Wasp yeah, that's in January <laughs> and he man of the match performance he was he was outstanding How I, I mean like in the first half alone I think he two or three turnovers Jackals, yeah yeah he was like um, if if like if you're picking a World Cup squad right now he, he might start at seven I think I mean, so too yeah. you, might, you might say God, I, I think Flander Flair has to start at seven right now like yeah and in a similar tone, I think based on form, I mean, Jack Holland, similarly, you saw he was man of the match against Ulster uh, in this semi-final last Saturday. Like his carries are really, really intelligent. I thought one of the, he made such a glaring error, such an uncharacteristic error against Saracens when he broke off, and it turned out to be for Ty Furlong's try. He carried off the back of the scrum and kind of, you know, unforgivably ran straight into Farrell, even though there was about four yards of space on the inside that he could have taken instead. But as a whole, I think that kind of stuff he, he very rarely does. One of the things that's really promising about him is kind of his brilliant support lines, his footwork into contact is really, really good. Um, he gets you a ton of work rate. Like, I, I think from a World Cup perspective, he's done himself no harm at all mm. because he, as a specialist, it wasn't looking that good. You know, when you're talking about... How, are they going to pick five back rows? If that is the case, is your CJ standard just starting number eight? 
does Conan do you bring a second number eight do you bring somebody with a bit more versatility but I think the, on his performance recently he's put himself in a really good position for a World Cup spot definitely I mean I can't see a World Cup squad without a minute yeah. I, I think he, he has to go but off the back of the, that weekend that game like really warned to see Devin Toner going off injured hopefully it isn't too bad yeah so Cullen did clarify after the game to say that they, he will have a scan uh, it looked pretty poor but he didn't even rule him out for next Saturday which okay. was kind of interesting so I like listen as we said we're talking on Sunday evening he, he was on crutches after the game. yeah he was yeah and he looked in a lot of pain uh, at the initial time as well but, I mean, we saw during the, during the Six Nations how important a player he is for Ireland at the line out so if somehow he was to be out for the World Cup it would be that would, that would be a massive massive blow We'll, uh, we'll speak to Jamie Hagen next about life in France and his kind of journey there so far. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put in a fruit salad. <laughs> <laughs> Like Hagen, and I like potato, you like tomato, and I like tomato, potato, potato, tomato, 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 all let's call the whole thing off. All right, I'm delighted to say we're joined now with Jamie Hagen. Jamie, how's the form? Not too bad, man, it's not too bad, how are you? Great, thanks, yeah. Come here, before um before we chat about life in France with Bézé and everything, Um, we were just talking about the, the Lansing game yesterday and about Ty Furlong. Um, there was even that moment in the second half where he stood in as a scrum half and kind of expanded his skill set. And it's funny to see that yeah. even in, you know, in the last five years, the evolution of, of a prop has been kind of incredible. And you're obviously somebody who's seen it from so many different perspectives, whether that be you know in Ireland or in Super Rugby or now in France. Like, Has that transition for your own sake been difficult? Um, well, I I always like to think of myself that I was pretty pretty able with the ball of hand. Okay. Um, so like over the last ten years, like definitely like when I when I first started playing, I think that old school sort of prop that didn't run with the ball has definitely changed. Like I remember when I was starting on Connacht, there was a prop called Robbie Morris, who was sort of my mentor, and he was like you know very he was he played for England. He was very typical English prop, but. He never, he never would like play with the ball of hand and nearly afraid to touch it. I think them days are long gone, and you know, as as you see, like you know, you have likes of Tyg Furlong, Macavonapola, um, you know, even like the Lancashire game, the last match, like you know, Jamie George, uh, Sean Cronin, all these front row players who who play with ball in hand, and you know, some of the skills um, they might have are, are, are just on par with you know the centers or the fly half. They they can step in at scrum half, as you said, and. They can swing a ball out wide, like you know that try that uh, that uh, Crown scored yesterday. Incredible, like you know Keen Healy catch, draw, pass, tug for long, back same thing. Sean Cronin over, and um, you know that's well, that's just the Leinster way as well. I suppose like everybody has the exact same skill, but like you can see it more and more teams, and especially front row players um, can play with ball in hand, which is which is good to see. Yeah, that like, it's funny, you know, that transition, even from your own sake, to what extent does that influence your own, like, your mind frame or your training? Because, you know, pr- previously, if you were judging props, you kind of would, it would be boiled down to, like, their set-piece contributions. You think about somebody like like John Hayes, for example, and suddenly then, like, you have to have, like, even the way Leinster used Furlong for these kind of tip-ons and stuff like that, like, there, it must be um, reflected kind of in training and how that kind of implements into their own philosophy as well. Yeah, definitely. Teams... Teams are are definitely utilising football players a lot more, you know whether that's uh, off nine 
having a tip pass out the back to to the ten, or is it you know off ten having a tip pass out the back even to the twelve? Like you know, I think I think that communication and that you know uh, mindset and knowledge and skill is, is definitely evolved over the last ten years. But that's not take away like Tyg Tyg Furlong. You know, he does his he does his bread and butter, and that's yeah. that's Wimbledon first and foremost. Like those are those are the the Brucey bonuses if you want. If you don't have if you don't have your bread and butter, then you're not going to get selected in the team. Like, you know, Ty is a phenomenal scrummager. You know, the, the, anybody who plays international level or, or plays like, you know, high, high level rugby, you know, especially in the front row, like that, that's our number one priority, the number one job. Like, you know, you, you don't get selected. Um, you don't get selected off the back of you being able to do a tip pass, you know, because there's more and more players out there that are able to do tip pass. So, so like the fact that you can find, a, a, I suppose, a balance between the two, but, you know, he likes a keen. He likes to for for the last six, seven years. Well, you know, keen even longer. Have been performing at the highest level at scrum time and and, and that particular aspect of their game. And then you know they have these skills as well. That that's a credit to, to them. I suppose it's credit to the, the, the coaches and trainers, like you know as well. But in saying that, Tyg, Tyg especially, you know, he came from a GA background a bit like myself. Um, so he would have always been next with the know ball in hand I think that's a massive influence of players who play Gaelic football from a young age you know is, is especially in Ireland because you have that hand skill coordination you know there's a lot of English there's a lot of English guys who play rugby who never played soccer or never played ball sport and you know when I played in England there was a, there was a big difference in skill level between you know the the, the Typhoid players and the Typhoid players back in Ireland I found anyway Okay, that's really interesting because um, like one of the themes that we talk about a lot in this podcast, especially with guys in France, is kind of like we always hear about, you know, suppose a difference, whether that being kind of like training standards or, you know, expectations or even just basic cultural differences. But you, even, you know, for those who don't know, like you started out with Connacht, with uh, Leinster, sorry, but also played with Connacht, you were at London Irish for a bit, down in Melbourne and now in France. Like you've seen it kind of it from as broad a perspective as kind of anyone we've spoken to on this podcast. I'm wondering, like, are those what we would perceive to be differences, whether that be in fitness or cultures, as as obvious when you're looking at it from within? Um, yeah, like you can you, you can definitely notice different traits in different teams, um, and and obviously then the different cultures as well. Like in, in in England, it was very you know forward orientated mindset where it was like scrum, mall, you know, forward it wasn't especially your type five forward, like you know, wasn't necessarily expected to pass like you know the bigger the better um, in Australia it was it was you know very very different like they expected everybody to have the exact same skills and it was you know worked on um, profusely every day you know there were skills for 15-20 minutes and that was that wasn't you know um, do it off your own bat that was obligatory so you just you just went and did it with the coaches and, and they worked on it really really hard you know to get everybody up to par and then um, in France then as well like you know the, they they have a structure in France, but then they, they they love to play, and you can see that with the the front row players, with the the back row players, with, with everybody. Like they love to play with ball in hand, and, and you know sometimes it doesn't go quite quite the way they want, but when it does work out, it's it's magic. Like I watched the the semi final here earlier on, and and uh, last night even there was a semi final against Oynax and Bayonne, and it was twenty seven six at half time to Oynax, and then full time it was thirty six. 34 to, to Bayonne. Okay. There was just there was just like Troy's galore and uh, and that was really integrated between backs and forwards. Um, so yeah, there's definitely different there's definitely different ways and different aspects 
that people you know focus on and more so on different different teams so yeah I've definitely seen it from from all over which which is which has been interesting yeah I can imagine um just on what you spoke about there with Melbourne like we spoke about uh, super rugby last week on the show you know obviously there's been Conor O'Donnell the Connor prep who just went down to, to Japan there um th- I'm really yeah. interested in in, in in that experience because you know given the kind of the culture within Irish rugby there's always seems to be certain players who seem way more suited to super rugby and I'm wondering like when you first found that was the emphasis that you just spoke about there much of a culture shock um yeah Australia Australia for me was a yeah but before I go on and talk about Australia I should I should um, talk about my I suppose my personal circumstance in Australia because when I went to Australia it was it was amazing like the first six months I was there was you know an amazing experience for me and my partner and then three matches into the super the super rugby season my partner got extremely ill and that sort of it just changed the whole experience for me she had a tumour in her in her neck and open to her open to the bottom of the base of her skull, and that just that just uh, don't mean to bring it down or into the conversation. I just put a whole different uh, perspective for me on rugby. Even to be honest, I was I was done with rugby, and uh, I fell into speaking about mental health and all this last week, and different people talking about mental health awareness and all that. I, I fell into like a massive. Um, I suppose I was very depressed and. Took me a long time to even talk about that um, with my partner, I suppose, as well. Like you know, the two of us went through an awful hard time, and and I was I was actually finished rugby. I retired. I was I was done after my season of Super Rugby uh, down there. And tell me, I, it's very it's a very deep like deep. I, I spoke to I spoke to another guy about it about, only about a month ago. It was the first time I spoke publicly about it uh, publicly about it um, since since it all happened and. Um, just on that, by the way, Jamie, like, um, that's obviously such a kind of traumatic experience when you're going to rugby. And especially given, you know, rugby is often kind of an outlet. Like, that's the way we kind of look at it when it's something for your livelihood. But that we, certainly, you know, from a media perspective or from a fan perspective, they don't really sometimes perceive the difficulties that might be in the background. And yet when they kind of have such a devastating effect like that, that it, it effectively kind of can reduce you to, to the borderline retirements. Yeah, like... As a as a young as a young player starting off playing rugby, um, Marsh, you you've all these ideas of grandeur and, and yeah. you know you play because you, you play because it's 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 an amazing thing to do. Like you know playing rugby for your you know first you play for Leinster or you play for Connacht or you know you play underage and it's just like oh this is a massive achievement and and you play because you really enjoy it. And then I, I suppose the older you get and you know you sort of the more the more pressure I suppose becomes upon you when things aren't going your way or something like that but I suppose the, the biggest thing that I took out of my partner getting ill was that rugby is such a small part of of my life do you know what I mean and for such a long time I was consumed by it you sort of live in this you live in this bubble and um, you can come you can become really caught up in it and it can it can take away from I suppose other aspects you like because you you're so caught up in it that you feel like it's it's the only thing, and then you know for me I had a you know pretty big awakening when my partner got ill like and then I realised oh my god this is this is nothing you know what I mean and then I was just I was just completely you know sick of it at that time look like, that's looking back now but at the time I was it was like the world ended like you know in both in both instances like you know I was very depressed off the pitch. And she got ill, and I was trying to keep it. I was, tr- I was trying to keep it together for, I suppose, both of us at the time. And 
and that affected my performances on the pitch. And yeah, I was it was a, it was a very bad um, place to be. But looking back on it now, I can reflect on those experiences and, and really and really learn that actually, hold on a second, will be will be is this is thing in your life that you're you know you're privileged to play and it's an amazing thing to have in your life. But your health and your partner's health and, and you know when it comes to having kids and that's that's so much more important and rugby's only only such a small piece of your life you know yeah um, very deep that's very, getting, I know that's, that's probably not what you were expecting from, from me but I you know I suppose I have to sort of put all my cards on the table um, speaking to you because it, it's it's only really the second time that I spoke spoke publicly about it the first time I spoke to a guy on LMFM radio about a month ago and that was it was quite good to get it off my chest and it was probably a harder conversation to have that one now it's a lot easier I suppose to speak about it yeah um, uh, yeah uh, sorry I'm, I'm losing my I'm losing my train of thought sorry and, and how is your partner now oh she's she's not a bother like we're we're getting married uh, brilliant we're getting married in two we're getting married in two weeks time here in the, in the south of France so life is life is definitely different but it's 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 been it's been good um, it's been good. Like when I when I got a call in December saying that there was a, a contract in Bezier, I was I was like done with rugby. I I was you know I said to my partner I was retiring. We were going to move to Sydney and trying to find normal normal jobs. Like my partner's a teacher. I was just finishing off like I was just finishing off um, degree in business, and we were just going to try and stay. And then. I suppose it was my it was my partner that really uh, really pushed me to to um, to to I suppose take another contract and um, and I was sort of him and on about it and then she was like Asher oh, listen we'll just go home anyway it's a free flight home you know France is only an hour from Ireland like it was a short term contract um, so we ended up doing that and I suppose I, I sort of fell in love with the game a little bit uh, again and didn't really have any pressure or had a new lease of life when she was um, she was better and everything was you know clear with her and uh, yeah and here we are now one thirty two and still and that rediscovering rugby is such like um, kind of like a powerful I suppose starting point for, for what we're talking about here because like the, the relationship between mental health and sport is you know there's been countless studies done within that but when you look at kind of the process that like some people don't really appreciate how much outside influences can affect you know your sport performance on the field and stuff like that like what what was the level that it took you to kind of get back to appreciating kind of doing what you love uh, as a living I suppose for me when I was playing like you know my my my, my partner Sinead like she would just say just just play and, and, and don't worry about it like I, I think that was the, the biggest thing is when after all this happened I realised that she was my my biggest worry and my biggest priority, yeah. and that for me that rugby was just a game then. And I I honestly had like a new lease of life when it came to like I played some of the best rugby. Bezier offered me a a you know three year contract, um, and then I just continued that mindset. Whereas that she was my she was my you know main priority, and my goals were different in life as well. Like where I suppose uh, a lot of your a lot of my goals would have been rugby orientated. Now they're completely not rugby oriented. Even though I still want to, I'm still, I like to think that I'm extremely professional when it comes to my job. I punctual. I do all my extras, um, and my my mind is is still focused on what I have to do for a living. But 
not to the extent where I'm constantly thinking about it, I suppose, Do you know? Yeah, of where course. Where to have, you know, you know I, 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 I took, it took something, I think it took something that drastic in my life to realize that that particular, you know, aspect of my life needed to, to move away from that because I was putting way too much, um, way too much pressure on myself, wasn't performing, like didn't perform in England my second year. When I went to Australia, all this happened, didn't perform. And then, and then, it, it, yeah, it, it was a, it was difficult. It was a very difficult time, but I suppose definitely that showed me, showed me that there's way more to life than, than rugby. And even, you know, you know, so like thinking back to where we started this conversation, researching for this interview, I was kind of thinking about, you know, like the technical differences that you might notice kind of traveling or even like cultural or fitness or whatever. And actually like, there's a way bigger picture to that. Like you as a, as an individual, somebody who like left your boyhood province and going to Connacht and then obviously, you know, like there's the thing about, you know, being so far away from family and trying to, you know, get used to like the whole livelihood of moving abroad away from even as a rugby perspective, like that journey as itself must be kind of as, as equally challenging or more so. Yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely a challenging period. Like, you know, me and, me and my partner are quite independent people. So like, yeah. we, we've always done our own thing for a long time. Like Sinead studied in, in England and, when I was playing for Leinster, like we've always sort of been quite independent of each other. But when we, we moved to Australia, it was obviously a massive move. Like England was, is not too far away from Ireland. It's only a plane journey away. And Australia is just, you know, it, especially when stuff like, like, you know, what happened to us happened, it just feels like a million miles away. You might as well be on the moon when it comes to having support from your family and, and, and your friends and your real close friends. And it was a difficult time, definitely. I think it, I think that made it more difficult, obviously. Um, yeah and Jamie from your own perspective like across your own career have you found that rugby teams are equipped to deal with maybe like they're obviously fully equipped to deal with the physical stress from rugby and things like that but even like from a mental health perspective like have you found that they have the environment to maybe offer some sort of assistance there Um, to be quite frank no like no like it depends on the, it really depends on the, on the on the individual and the team to mm-hmm. be honest I think I think for some people they would probably bend bend over backwards to help them and then for other people um, maybe not so much like you know yeah, and it, it would probably surprise you to, to find out how many people probably even suffer from mental issues and you know as, as, a, as a player um, you know the the the, the I suppose the, the business aspect of playing rugby, and you know, it is a business, and that's where sort of talk about the pressures and and the decisions you make in your life that that can really, really build up in your head when it comes to you know this business that I, that I just like talked about. That you know, teams to a certain degree, you're you're a piece of meat, and if you're injured, if you're injured physically, you know, there's somebody to replace you, and obviously to to get that time back. Um, on the pitch physically, you know, to re- rehabilitate, there's a specific timeline uh, for that player. But if you have, you know, mental health issues or you're going through a tough time in your life, there, there really isn't a prescribed time frame. Like, you know what I mean? What is it? Six, six uh, weeks, you know, to two months or, you know, how, how can you, how can you actually justify, you know, somebody who's, you know, going through a trauma in their life? How long did they, they need to, you know, to, to rehabilitate their mind, I suppose. It's, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, there is a massive emphasis in Ireland 
and England about uh, mental health issues and, and um, how they're dealt with. And, and that's, the awareness is obviously amazing. It's great to have, but a lot of people who go through their own issues and you, you never, never know, you know? And there's a lot of people who can deal with those issues and go about their life and, and you would never, never see that. But, you know, the, it, it can affect, it can be, I suppose, an underlying effect. You know, if you do have a, a bad day in the rugby pitch, that might be due to something. And, you know, the media, I suppose, is is even more ruthless in, in that regard. Where, where sometimes, you know, somebody has a you know bad game or they they fall out of form, and it's that you know perceptional. They don't even think about why, or is there another reason behind it, or, or anything like that. It's just like, oh, <laughs> you know, to put it bluntly, oh, sure, he's you know he's shy, or he's after falling out of form, or you know, coach doesn't like him, or blah blah this, or blah blah that, like you know, and. Yeah, that can be, yeah, that can be just the perception of people. That's that's life, I suppose. You know, um, yeah. And I think probably a large extent of that can be put down to ignorance, like people not being necessarily conscious of the of the fact that you know there could even be something beyond what they kind of comprehend. You know, there's a bigger issue that they might not even know about. Um, like I think that can be a difficult thing for people to actually grasp onto. But even you know, in terms of a rugby atmosphere, like it's interesting to hear. You know, like rugby is an inherently cutthroat business, and obviously you know there's going to be pressures when there's injury. They're going to look elsewhere and stuff like that. Like when you've encountered maybe areas that it's that they've been deficient in, in kind of being conscious of that. Would you have put that down to the the business model itself, or is that more just down to ignorance? That like as awareness grows, that institutions and media itself especially you know everybody might become more conscious of it well I suppose that's that's like the that's like the hope Jeremy yeah. and like you know the the the, the Arupa in Ireland and the OPA they're, they're very um, they're very big on you know supporting players and they have they have you know mental health awareness with um, tackle your feelings in, in Ireland which is you know extremely important for players to come out and say that they, you know, they've, they've suffered from this or they have issues and they have problems. And I think, um, I think more and more players, you know, need to, you know, you know, stand up and voice their opinions about, about different things because it, it is, it can be a massive, um, it can be a massive stigma with, you know, being, you know, mentally weak or if you have a, you know, mental health issues. Like, and I suppose, like, you know, there's a lot of, I suppose, you know, still old school mentality about, you know, being weak in, in your mind or, and it's it's you know as as that you know campaign last week in England like it's 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 okay not to be okay, and um, and like that's something that that took me a long time to realise when I was actually fell into my my sort of deepest um, depression as you would say I suppose when I was in Australia and eventually came out of that through through actually going to um, to a psychologist and, and talking about stuff and, and talking through my issues. And, and um, you know there is no there is no time frame like people people can live with people can live with trauma for you know, for the rest of their lives like I tell you you cope and if there's coping mechanisms if a coach is aware of players who have you know certain um, certain issues or you know if there's any problems and you know I suppose the biggest the biggest thing is actually to talk talking about it my time in Melbourne um, I didn't speak about it to anybody you know nobody. Nobody knew my partner was sick in the in the team, um, and that was a big thing that I realised that you know you need to speak about these things to people like you know like the coach didn't know the only person who knew was the doctor, and he was obviously sworn to um, patient client co- confidentiality. Mm-hmm. So with that, like I 
I he was like, oh, we need to let the coach know. And I was like, you know, for some reason in my head, I was like, no, I don't want the coach know. And that was probably the worst decision I made. Do you know what I mean? Because he didn't he didn't know what was going on with me. He could see that I was, I suppose, I, I wasn't training effectively or I wasn't playing effectively. And, and then, um, yeah, and then it was, I suppose it was too late. And then that, that's, that's a, probably a regret that I have that I didn't um, try and deal with this sooner. I thought, you know, why do I need to go see a psychologist? Or what do I need to do? Or why do I need to speak with this? I was trying to grab, like, you know what I mean? Was, actually, all this pressure was actually building up and building up and building up and building up. And then it just, it sort of just exploded on me. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, so it was, that was very tough. Well, yeah. Um, and, only now, and, and only now, like, I suppose, when there was that 2016, like three years on, I can actually, you know, first time I've actually spoke about it was only a month ago. So, um, and that's three years on, and, and I can I've spoke about it obviously to my family and to my friends and my close friends and, and my partner. Um, but like, yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to admit to to yourself that you actually need to speak to somebody, or you know. And I think I think more players, if they do have issues, they need to you know voice their voice their um, issues to their coaches or. And, and you know, I suppose with rugby, you know, you, you like to think that it is like you know, you know especially for Pedro club, it's, it's a big family, and and you know, I suppose if coaches know early, they can look after you to a certain degree because you know it is a business as well. So there's that. It's like a double-edged sword, like you know. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, on this team, sorry, I'm off. I'm off and on. Sorry. <laughs> but like, I think this is. It's probably you know, like I actually think it's conversations like this. We we spoke about you know raising awareness, and it's conversations like this that actually will do that. Like it's people kind of you know like sympathy is one of the greatest powers. Like people actually epitomizing understanding from a perspective of somebody who is a you know a professional rugby player. And you know even on that team, right? Like there's obviously the rugby is primarily kind of this really macho sport. And I'm wondering like to what extent did that kind of maybe make it all the more challenging for you to to go to somebody to talk about it, or you know to even like you spoke about difficulties in even like coming to acceptance with the fact that you needed help. Like to what extent did that kind of the you know this like alpha kind of bullshit that is sometimes within it did did that influence your decision? Yeah, I think it did. Like I, I think in my head, like you know. I, I think that that's exactly what happened. I think that I was naive, and I was, I was, you know, I, I know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big strong man. Why, why do I need to go speak to anybody? Or why, why should I? I just, you know, bottle up my feelings and and uh, go about my business. But like little did you, little did I realize that you know when you have stress and you have issues in your life that they come they come out on you in different ways whether you like it or not. Like you know, and that comes with like you know lack of concentration if you're thinking about things you don't even realize you're thinking about things or. You know, you're not sleeping properly at night time. Um, you're not eating properly. You're not covering properly. Um, you're not communicating with your teammates. You're not, you're not fully understanding drills. Um, you're not fully understanding plays. You know, you're, you're maybe dehydrated because you're not drinking enough as well. Like, you know, there's, there's so many different um, areas where you, you just you just don't even realize that it's, it's nearly going on. And you're like thinking, you, you know, the more you start talking to yourself, you're like, no, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, go about my business here and, it's the worst thing you could. It's the worst thing you could do. Like literally, it's the it's the worst thing you could you could do. And, it, and it, if I, if we are talking about this and people are listening and, and if they have you know issues in their life, they're going through a hard time. Like you know, you know, they need to speak about it. Whether whether it be at you know an amateur level, whether there's players playing you know AL or you know below, or there's players playing at under twenty level. In the academies, you know, any anybody who's listening to this who's got issues, you know, you know, they need to speak about them. Right? And if they don't, it's the it's, it's the worst thing they could do because it's like a 
like a like a pressure you know pressure valve you just building this pressure and then obviously it's, the pressure has to go somewhere yeah and I guess they're kind of the moments where you know like there's a for you there's a dichotomy like you're trying to balance doing you know your your livelihood with with, with doing what you love with it being a job as well and I guess trying to balance the two of those is always going to be kind of challenging but it, it would never feel more so than when you're going through something like that yeah like 100% like you know if you were if you were, if I was probably dealing with the same thing and I was and I was going to a a 9 to 5 job you get away with it you know mm-hmm. but you're you're going out and you physically have to perform every day in your job like you know, there's, there's not one day where you go to work and it's going to be all right to make it easy today you know it's every day you have to be on the money where you know the small skills of passing the ball as we talked about earlier on or, or it's full contact or it's knowing your, your role like you need to be fully on the money every day you know yeah um, and that and I suppose if you know that that's obviously the high, high pressure role in itself you know you mentioned obviously leaving Australia and going to France are, are you back enjoying your rugby now and kind of you know back up to like a healthy level I guess yeah like um, I re- I'm really enjoying um, I'm really enjoying my time here in France we just missed out on the quarterfinal playoffs uh, by like two points we lost last game we had a one we would have made the, the playoff last year we made the playoff which was amazing um, I didn't actually play because I, I injured my neck about three months before the season ended um, I had to get a neck operation which was grand all sorted now and I'm back back playing I played all this year which is great um, and I'm just in the process of renegotiating my contract so hopefully that will be done in the next two weeks so hopefully play for another two more seasons and um, yeah retire into the into the sunset <laughs> and have you have you thought much about that like your plans post rugby Um. Yeah, we have. We spoke about what we want to do post rugby, whether might be get into some coaching here in France or going back to Ireland. Um, like me and my partner are very much homebirds. Like we've definitely enjoyed our time away. We've been away from Ireland probably for the last six, seven years at this stage, and we're getting married in a couple of weeks. And like, you know, you know, talking about maybe what the next chapter would entail, maybe kids and you know moving back home and trying to you know set, set up and uh, start roots back home again which 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 is exciting as well like you know it's obviously next chapter and yeah it's 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 a planning process yeah for sure uh, on on this chapter you know like the, the having such kind of a a well journeyed and fascinating career like when you were growing up in Ireland was that was that always a plan like presumably you you probably thought in your own head, convention at the time was probably stay in Ireland. Like the fact that you've gone abroad, how do you reflect on that in hindsight now? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, to be honest, man, so I only started playing rugby when I was sixteen. So, like, you know, the fact that three or four years later I was actually making a career out of this sport that I only picked up in the latter part of my teenage years was was incredible, you know. Yeah. And and um, I was very very lucky to uh, to nearly fall into it. Like, you know, was, I came up through the um, through the club system, through the youth level, um, and it was you know very far if few between boys who make it through that level, like you know um, over the last ten years, and to come through that level and, and to sort of have an opportunity, then like you know when when you sort of get in and you get your foot in the door, you realise oh actually I have an opportunity to make a career of this, and I just went with it, and 
um, when I when I was starting off, with my my goal as a young player was you know play for Lancaster. And when I was in the academy, we had you know Dave Fagan as the sub academy coach, and then you know Colin McAtee after that as the academy coach, and, and Richie Murphy, and, and they were amazing, like you know um, role models and coaches in in, the, in in I suppose all the young academy guys' life at that time. But your your goal was to play for for Lancaster. Um, you know Michael Checker was the head coach back then, and he was an extremely hard taskmaster. And I ended up getting an opportunity to go to play for Connacht, and I was like, right, go to Connacht and, you know, really try and build something down here. And I ended up getting an opportunity to come back to Lancaster. And, you know, as a, as a, as a you know, young Dublin man who only started really playing rugby probably eight years previous or six years previous, you know, my goal was to stay in Lancaster and play for Lancaster. That's why when the opportunity came, I, I, you know, jumped at it to go back to Lancaster. You think, right, I'm here, I'm back, I'm back here and, and this is where I want to play, but like that's not how life goes sometimes, you know. And, and um, you know, the first year I was Lancer, I struggled massively with the, you know, the way Joe, uh, Joe Schmidt coached, and you know, my level of fitness wasn't up to scratch. I wasn't heavy enough, and my fitness didn't match my my um, my weight, and just struggled. And and then the second year was looking at different options, and then I ended up actually playing, you know, really working hard and playing well under Joe. But then I had already already um, had signed for London Irish by that time, and I, you know, I suppose that was another, you know, funny, funny moment in my career when when I had no more pressure of you know performing for Leinster. I was leaving, and I started playing some of my best rugby, and ended up playing for Ireland that season. So like, it's just mad the way you know, you, you know, your mindset can go, and when you actually nearly don't care, not you don't care, but you don't have any worries that you, that's when you sort of play your best. If that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I. I Sorry, it's, just, it's really interesting you say that because like I actually remember like what when you were at Connacht and playing with Michael Swift and trying to el- elaborate your skill set, and then I remember at Leinster initially like I think it was Michael Bent arrived, and uh, it, it nearly felt like in response to that like that season when you went kicked on to play for Ireland that you kind of like I it almost rose to a challenge in a sense and we're playing really well and obviously as you mentioned got into play with Ireland as well, but I didn't realize that uh, you you would agree to leave Leinster kind of early that second season, had you? Yeah, in in January it was quite funny actually. Okay. Cause I remember in March, I remember in March like Joe, Joe came to me and goes, "Oh, like is there any way maybe you can get out of that contract or have you signed that contract?" A lot like, something along those lines. And I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm signed." I'm, I'm gone. Yeah. I was signed. Like you know, you, you know. So like that's a decision as well. Like you know, you, you know, what if like you know and uh, yeah, Benty Benty came in that year and you know Benty's been playing for Lancaster ever since. Like you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Like maybe if I had a uh, you know bide my time and and, um, and you know not made a hasty decision I would have been still there but you know these are decisions you make in life and it took me on a different it took me on a different career path and, and the rest is history as you sort of say I went to London and then uh, I had a I had a good first season there under Brian Smith and then Brian Smith got sacked and then coach came in who really didn't sort of you know butt ahead with a little bit went along back to Leinster and came back to London, wasn't getting a lot more game time, and then obviously the the opportunity came to go to Australia then, and I jumped at it because, you know, as a young kid when I was when I was starting playing rugby, the sixteen year old, my Saturday mornings were consumed with watching Super Rugby. Yeah, I was one of these like when I started playing rugby, I just like jumped in with two feet, you know, not even testing the deep, like the, the levels of the water. I was straight in. I was like, okay, what do I do? Trying to learn as much as I can, and, and you know, Super Rugby was my go-to every Saturday morning. I used to watch 
my favourite player was uh, Carlo Spencer. I used to watch him, and like as a, even like as you know the toy head prop, I, I was like, oh, I'm just obsessed with Carlo Spencer. Because when I actually when I actually started playing for Brigg, and I I played prop, I, I played ten as well, okay. which is mad, <laughs> yeah. you know. So like I didn't I didn't think I was going to play uh, toy head prop for my career when I started. I was a sixteen year old, um, yeah. So it was a, it was a, it was a bit crazy, um, yeah. But, but yeah, to get an opportunity to play Super Rugby, I like just jumped at it and. Um, yeah, but then life happens, I suppose. Like, you know, the decisions you make in your life and, and then as a rugby player, you forget, like, you know, <laughs> you know, and this media as well, perception. Like, you're, you know, you play for Ireland, you're, you're a rugby player, you play for Munster or Lancer or whoever you play for. And that's your perspective. But, like, uh, you know, there's, there's also the other side of, of that coin, which is your life that happens. And, you know, you have you know, partners, you have um, family, you have you know, abundance of things that go on in the background that, you know, sometimes people forget about, especially the media, I suppose. You know, it's very much, you know, the limelight's on you and the spotlight's on you. For those 80 minutes that you play, you play every week and that's what you're, uh, that's what the media's perception of you is, you know? Yeah. And even, you know, when you talk about the the pressure you spoke about at, at Leinster, like that, presumably that's that's self-enforced. That's you feeling like I don't know, like some sort of pressure to to perform or to represent your province. Well, well, yeah, exactly. But it was the standards of the team. Like when I like when okay, I was yeah. at Leinster, no, no disrespect to to any of the coaches in Connacht or anything like that, but like the level that Joe wanted me to go to was a level that I hadn't um, I hadn't seen before, and I wasn't I wasn't ready for that. I don't know whether that was naivety. I I didn't prepare myself well enough or I thought that I was, because I started for Connacht every match the previous season, I thought, oh sure, I was going to go in here and it'd be grand, you know? And as a, as a young 23-year-old kid or 24-year-old kid, I think I just turned 24, um, I, didn't, I didn't understand that. And maybe that's because I, 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 I don't know. I honestly can't look back and I was like, you know, I, I really didn't understand the level that was expected of me. And I just thought, well, I'm, I've made it like sort of that in that sort of regard but I got kind a of rude awakening in my first training session yeah and, um, and I remember I remember just I remember Joe just being like and I know there is there is a there is a, a sense of pride Lester, that you want to do well and there is a pressure there definitely is a pressure wearing, wearing the harp on your on your chest that, and, I, and that is a culture that the senior players have have made over the last 10 to 15 years that you know winning is a is a is a, is a Mindset and the culture that they bring is just like every, you know everything is every player that plays for Leinster they bring a certain standard and that standard has to be maintained whether you're whether you're you know a first year academy player who who steps into you know the most senior player on the team Johnny Sexton the captain you know the 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 standard obviously expected from you is the same and does that standard become like your own self-standard even when you like went to London Irish or now Melbourne even in France like presumably because of that you've got a base level that you expect of yourself regardless of external influences yeah 100% like you know I I, um, I was you know very frustrated with some of the teams I played for like you know because okay, yeah. you know that's sort of that's like the gold standard like you know and then you, you realise that not every team is the same and you know the cultures and teams are definitely not the same like Leinster for me um like I played on and off, I was back on loan a couple of times. I, I did a short spell before. Every time I went back, like the standard is just the gold standard for me. And the the environment that they breathe, it's just like everybody's on the same page. Whereas some of the other teams I played for, no, there's not no respect. Is like some people are there 
And some people might be playing for money or some people might be playing because it's the, you know, the, the, the end of the career. And there's people that, you know, part of the furniture who can influence a lot in the club as well, but not to, um, not to a positive, you know, mindset as well. Um, and then sometimes you just don't have the individuals or the, or the players that you're used to playing with the same, you know, talk about skill level earlier on in the conversation, like the same, the same skill level. Um, some, like it's just different. Like and you can see that the way Lancer, like Lancer, have been to um, five European Cup finals in the last ten years. Yeah, you know they've won four, which is incredible. You know that's not including the Challenge Cup final they won um, back when I was playing for them either. You know, like they've you know the last ten years they've won you know five European trophies. You know how many domestic league titles have they won as well? Two or three as well. Like you know the. the Go like same even in England with Saracens like the standard is, the standard is gold and the culture that they breed is, is infectious you know it's, it, when people go into that environment that's what they want to do and, and definitely I, I try to maintain those standards but it's very difficult to to maintain you know you try and maintain your own personal standards but it's very hard like and then you sort of get angry and when I came to the France I, I struggled you know to you know to um, to speak to players or because obviously my French was poor as well but like you sort of get a little frustrated but like I found especially in France you you need to take take the way they do things with a pinch of salt because it's very French and it's their culture and you're just you know you're just visiting that makes sense you're just like you know you come for tea and you, you, you don't say it out of, out of place <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah Jamie, one of the themes on this podcast that we talk about a lot is the kind of, you know, the ability to take pride in performance kind of regardless of, of results. And given kind of the like really significant and important uh, issues we spoke about on, already today, I'm kind of curious, like in terms of your own progress, like you've made so much progress just in general, like as, as an individual, regardless of rugby and all this stuff, can you take pride in that? Like when you look at where you're at now and you kind of, a conversation, a conversation like this would nearly force you to look back in hindsight. Is there kind of a, a pride at your own development as well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Like, you know, I, I am, um, well, my partner tells me she's proud of me. So I suppose <laughs> I, I, I take her a bit. I take her opinion above everybody else's. She, she could give me a kick up the ass when, when I've uh, let myself get too, um, too far ahead of myself or too low on myself or well that. So she, she's been amazing over here. But she, she actually, you know, her name's Sinead O'Man. She played for Dublin um, when, for like years, she played for Dublin, um, Dublin football. And uh, when she went to Australia, she was actually playing the highest level of AFL as well over there for a time um, before we had to come home before obviously she got sick and stuff like that but she's, she's she tells me I'm proud so that's the only indicator that I need and that's the only person I need to tell me um, tell me what's what so yeah like I I definitely feel a sense of pride when she says that to me and I can definitely see my journey and, and how it's you know made me into the person I am today and with all those, you know, rough, rough and tumbles that you have, that's that's part of life, and you only realise that you, you obviously start starting out as a twenty year old man or an eighteen year old man, whatever, whatever time you start out playing rugby as a, as a professional player, you don't you don't realise that you know life happens and there's stuff in life that that can affect and um, stuff, and yeah, it's it's interesting. Like it definitely was when I first spoke about this publicly, talking about my my journey it was it was. It was 
difficult sometimes. Some of the decisions I made are sort of saying in hindsight, oh, what if I hadn't made a decision? You, you can't think like that because the past is in the past and you can reflect on you can reflect on your decisions that you made, but you need to always be thinking in the present and towards the future. Yeah, absolutely. Just before you go, like I think it's um, kind of important. I, I, I kind of want to thank you, I suppose. This is the stuff that like we always talk about raising awareness and it's actually it's only really people like you who can have the bravery to come out and actually speak publicly about it that it's that that process is going to happen um so i think like if this is value to even one person listening that then it's probably a worthwhile endeavor i uh, don't no, no no worries but i i think if you had caught me maybe a year or two ago i definitely wouldn't have i definitely wouldn't have spoke about it so i suppose right time right place so no it's good if if i can if i can you know talk to anybody or give anybody a bit of voice or anybody wants to, I suppose, reach out to me privately. I'm on social media and wants to have a chat. I'm, I'm always available to, to speak to anybody who wants to speak. Right. Um, pretty incredible stuff there from Jamie Hagan. That's it for us. We'll be back next week to reflect on the Pro 14 final. In the meantime, take it easy. <laughs>